In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Gospel lesson today contains one of Jesus' better-known parables. In fact, one commentator I look to for help with this homily rude just how well-known and how well-understood this parable is after some 2,000 years of reflection on it by the church. And he devoted rather little space to it in his commentary, noting that there's not much here to surprise us. And while nothing we hear today may surprise us, I think this story can serve as a reminder of the message of mercy and hope that sits at the very heart of Luke's gospel. Our lesson for today picks up after Jesus has begun his final journey to Jerusalem. This journey in Luke's gospel begins with the healing of a group of lepers and then launches into a series of teachings from Jesus about the nature of the kingdom of God. In the section in which we find ourselves today, we find Jesus describing some of the characteristics of life in this kingdom. He's trying to help us begin to understand what are the values, the deep rhythms of wisdom that uphold the kingdom of God. What is a kingdom dweller's life supposed to look like? In last week's lesson, Jesus taught his disciples about perseverance in prayer. And then this week, he further describes some of this essence of kingdom life by telling a story that is also couched in this imagery of prayer. Although admittedly, it starts out sounding a little bit like one of our rabbi, priest, and an imam walk into a bar kind of jokes. But in the end, it pierces right to the heart of the gospel message. In this story, Jesus tells us that two men went up to pray. This would have resonated with his listeners as they were doing much the same thing. One of the men in Jesus' story was a religious leader, and the other a tax collector. Our tradition has wrongly conditioned us to have an allergic reaction to any mention of Pharisees in the text to immediately paint them as the villains in any story where they may appear. But I think we all, and especially those of us who are clergy or religious, would do well to remember that in Jesus' day, unlike our own tax collectors, were considered far more villainous and suspect than religious leaders. But as you've been paying attention to Luke's narrative style in this gospel, you're likely already expecting an inversion of sorts in the moral order of the story. This is something we know that Luke loves to do in his gospel, to take our expectations about how the world works and then stand that moral order on its head. You can think of the Beatitudes or the Magnificat as examples of this. It's in a, a sort of extreme literary disorientation therapy that knocks us off our feet to then reorient us to kingdom values. Well, if that's what you came to the text expecting, you won't be disappointed here. Jesus does precisely that. So we've got these two fellows on their way to the temple, and the respected religious leader gets there, and we have to hand it to him. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. And just in case God has forgotten who these other people are that he should be concerned with, our fellow at prayer is ready to list them off. Robbers, villains, adulterers, or even that guy, the tax collector over there. Now, while this is incredibly relatable at times, 
and it's entertaining precisely because it is so relatable, it's also clear that this man is not really praying, at least not to God. Some of our English translations help tease that point out a bit more than others. One translation reads, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. This isn't prayer. It's projection. And that projection is just one element of a framework that helps that leader feel secure in who he is and in his standing in his community and in his relationship with God. But as secure as he might feel in that moment, all of that projection is just a thin veneer of plaster over a thick wall of desperation that sits deep inside the human soul. And it's not just this poor religious leader who does this. We humans are all experts at building frameworks like these to help ourselves feel secure and included. In fact, one of the fastest ways for us to build a facsimile of community is to get clear about who we are not like and build our community identity over and against the identity of another. We see silly and innocuous examples of this all the time. What's a quick way to build some rapport with fellow Rotarians? Well, crack a joke about the Lions Club. And if you're a new member in the Lions Club, what do you do to feel more at home? Well, poke fun at the Rotarians. This example, of course, is rather benign, and we know that the behavior is silly even when we engage with it or engage in it. But the striking thing is that it works. More seriously, as humans, we've built cultures and religious communities through these mechanisms of individual and collective othering and scapegoating. Theologian and priest James Allison writes, We know of no ethnic group anywhere on the face of the planet, no gang in the periphery of any major city which is not inclined to build its unity at the expense of a social other. The problem, of course, is that this othering is anything but innocuous and is the very seed of the division and violence we see all around us. And perhaps it's the universality of this tendency to scapegoat and other that leads Luke to address this story to a unique cast of characters. In all the rest of his gospel, the groups or individuals engaged in conversation with Jesus are people we can easily, easily identify, his disciples, a group of Pharisees, the young ruler, and so on. But this story is addressed to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. And it's quite likely we're supposed to imagine this group as being comprised of both some of his disciples and some of the Pharisees he's just been speaking with. And if we think about it, this group cuts across every set of diametrically opposed pairs we could hope to name in our own culture and in our own lives. And if I'm honest, it cuts a path right to the core of my own heart more often than I would like to admit. The reality is that the greatest danger to the manifestation of the kingdom of God in our midst isn't this cast of villains that the, leader, that the religious leader points to. These robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and tax collectors. In some sense, he might as well have been listing Natasha, Boris, and Moriarty. Because the real villain he has to face, the real villain I have to face, is the part of me that's willing to participate 
in creating a cast of others to exclude so that I can feel more secure, at least for a moment, on the inside. But in the kingdom of God, relationships and communities are formed in a radically different way. Jesus teaches and then inaugurates this through his death and resurrection, this very different way of being together as humans. A way of being together in which there is no need of a social other, as there's no scarcity of belonging that we have to compete for. And as we drop our projections and desperate attempts to create a place for ourselves over and against another, we can finally begin to discover who we are and get relaxed into becoming who we were made to be. To turn again to James Allison, who has an analogy for this experience that I think is very helpful and memorable. He compares this abundance of belonging in the family of God and its effect on our soul to the experience of being gently and steadily loved by a kind older relative. Aunt Mildred, he calls her. He contrasts spending time with her and her effect on the soul with the experience of meeting with a potential employer for a job interview. In the job interview, we find ourselves competing for a scarce, limited resource, the job. And we're in, com in competition with a host of other candidates that we suspect are infinitely more qualified than ourselves. We don't know the interviewer and aren't entirely sure what the criteria are that they will use to judge us. So he writes, we go as smartly dressed as we can manage, with as polished a CV as the bounds of honesty will admit, and all the wrinkles of our life's history neatly ironed out. This is radically different from spending time with dear old Aunt Mildred, where afterwards we find ourselves a bit more relaxed, a bit more settled in our own skin, and a bit more free to love. How is this possible? Allison writes, because we know that Aunt Mildred likes us and wants what is good for us. So when we're with her, we don't need to impress her or convince her of our worth. In fact, we can let our masks down and allow ourselves to be teased, our foibles to be giggled at. And you know her enough to know that she is trustworthy, not out to get you, and won't hold things she learns about you against you. And this is a bit like the experience of being loved in the family of God. This is the kingdom of God that we're called to participate in building. And this is how it slowly does its work of transforming our hearts and frees us from the perceived need to compete with others for standing, belonging, worth, and value. Back to our two guys at prayer. The tax collector seems to get this. Jesus tells us that his prayer is in resonance with the wisdom of the kingdom, and it is he who leaves the temple justified, at peace, and in harmony with God. What is this prayer of his? It's quite simple. And it's one that the desert mothers and fathers would recommend to us as the heartbeat of our own prayer lives. And it's simply this, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector doesn't project or point to an external cast of villains or extenuating circumstances. He just stands squarely as he is and asks for the mercy that we all need and that God is ever so ready to pour out upon us. And just as the religious leader's projection and othering and false prayer is the seedbed for division and violence, the tax collector's honest prayer for mercy 
can be the seedbed of hope and healing in our lives and in our midst. So may God have mercy on us, beloved fellow sinners. In the name of God, lover, beloved, and love overflowing. Amen.